Good evening, everyone. Wow, okay, good evening. I am so excited to be here. And um, I'm excited to share a little bit um, from my academic background and also my work integrating social psychology and theology. And so it should be really fun. And I have so much information for you. So we're going to dive right in. I am guessing I'm the first social psychologist to speak to you all. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what that is. Social psychology is the um, study of the ways in which the real, imagined, or implied presence of others impacts our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. So if you think about it, we're really interested in the social situation broadly defined and how it impacts us. And social psychology um, has been around for a little over 100 years, and there's so many wonderful contributions. But one of the most groundbreaking contributions and something that's kind of like a cornerstone of our field is um, the ways in which where our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors are affected um, without us even knowing about it. What does non-consciousness mean in the context of social behavior? And in 1995, um, Social psychologists had been studying this for a while, but we hadn't really looked at behaviors. We had kind of looked at non-conscious processes on thoughts, maybe even emotions. But um, a really well-known psychologist named John Barge, who was at NYU at the time, decided to do a study that would investigate, gosh, can people's actual behaviors and actions be influenced outside of their awareness? And so he did what has now become a very famous classic study. And it's even now I think about it and get chills. So what happened is he um, got a bunch of NYU students to participate in his study. The average age was 19.1 years. And so they were all like kind of traditional college age, sophomore year um, in, in general. And he had them come into the lab and he split the people into two groups. Half the people um, were asked to do um, a kind of a word game where they were given a bunch of words and had to create sentences out of them. And um, the words that they were given all had to do with an elderly stereotype. And so they never got the words old or elderly, but they, got to, they were working with words like um, bingo, Florida, and wrinkle, stuff like that. So things that you would associate with the elderly. And then the other half of the people were in the control condition, and so they just got neutral words like apple and things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with being elderly. And then after they'd had a chance to create sentences out of the words, they said, okay, the study's over. Thanks for participating. You're free to leave. And people left, and they had to leave. They left the lab and had to walk down the hallway to an elevator in order to exit the building, and they had a research assistant at the end of the hallway at the elevator measuring how long it took people to walk from the lab door to the elevator, and they found that people who had been working with the elderly stereotype words walked significantly more slowly than people who had not. And this study has been replicated over and over and over again, but it's a groundbreaking finding because it shows that I mean, people who were 19 years old, somehow, without even knowing that they were working with these words, processed that information as self-relevant, and it actually impacted their behavior. So this kind of opens up this idea that, gosh, there's so much that we do, that we think, that we feel, that's affected by things that we're not even aware of. And so it's really no surprise that when we take research like this and think about it in the context of race 
and ethnicity and racism, that there's lots of possibility that we're being influenced outside of our conscious awareness as we interact with people who are different than us. And I know this term, Black Lives Matter, is a, is a, is a relatively new term. It you know, was first used in 2015, and I know that your church has been talking about this as like a theological affirmation. Um, but the concept of Black Lives Matter, the concept, this, you know, the idea that um, perhaps not all lives matter equally well in our country, perhaps some lives are more targeted by police brutality than others is not a new one. And in fact, when I was um, uh, just out of college, just out of high school, actually, in 1999, um, there was a huge news story that was going on um, across the world, but it was taking place here in the United States. And I don't know if you remember it, but there was a, a young African immigrant named Amadou Diallo who had been um, shot and killed by four NYPD police officers. And um, what happened was he was coming home from work one night really late, and um, some police officers tried to apprehend him because he supposedly looked like someone who um, they were someone who was a suspect um, for a crime that they were investigating. Um, and because of the um, history of race relations between black people and often the police, it, rather than stopping and being, um, and being apprehended, he decided to uh, actually just keep going and go up the stairway to his apartment. And um, he was backlit. And so when they, he finally turned around, he put his hand in his pocket to pull out his wallet to show his ID. The police officers thought that um, he was pulling out a gun and they shot him and they shot him and they shot him and they shot him 41 times. And so there were four white NYPD officers and one unarmed black man. And so there was a huge uproar obviously in the black community, but in other communities who were standing in solidarity with black people. And um, at the time, these four police officers were like, we swear we're not racist, we swear, you know, we, we, we thought it was a gun, um, we were frightened, you know, the things that police officers often say in defense of such um, br brutality. And so some social psychologists said, well, let's investigate this. We now know, you know, it's 1999, it's a few years after this John Barge elderly study had come out, like we now know that sometimes we can be, be affected by things outside of our conscious awareness. Let's investigate this. And so a social psychologist at the University of North Carolina, which is actually just down the road from where I'm at, at Duke, um, his name's Keith Payne, he decided to do a study. And what he was really interested in was, do people, average people, college students, people your age, um, do they automatically associate black men with danger and white men with safety? And so what he did is he found, a, he got pictures just, just of faces of white men and black men. And um, he flashed those pictures to participants um, subliminally which means that he flashed the pictures so quickly on the, on the um, computer screen that people could not yet, could not report that they had actually seen the pictures. If you, if you are presented with something at like less than 300 milliseconds, you won't actually register that you'd seen it, but you are affected by it. And so this was his way of trying to get people kind of um, 
stimulating race in people's minds um, without them knowing that he was doing that. And so they were subliminally um, presented with either a black face or a white face, and then right after each black face or white face, they were presented with either a gun or a tool, a picture of a tool, like a, um, like a hammer or um, a, a, a wrench or something like that. And the pictures of the guns and the tools were not subliminal. They were flashed really quickly. Um, so people knew that they had seen something, but it was flashed so quickly that they, they weren't quite sure what they had seen. So they had to make a guess. And so he was really trying to recreate a situation in which someone would have to make a snap judgment, like limited time, limited information. Maybe it's a little blurry. I just have to decide in the moment, is this a gun? Is this a threat? Or is this a tool? Is this not a threat? And so basically people got paired with either like a black face and a tool or a black face and a gun or a white face and a tool or a white face and a gun. And they just had to quickly decide tool, gun, tool, gun, tool, gun as fast as they could and as accurately as they could. And he had a really diverse sample, so people of all races were in his sample. And what he found was that people reported not seeing the faces, which is the whole point. He, you certainly don't want people to see the faces. But he found that when people had been presented with a black face and then a tool, they were more likely to misidentify that tool as a gun than if it had been a white face presented with a tool. In fact, when white faces were presented with guns, people were more likely to identify the gun as a tool. And so we found that automatically, the average person, the average college student, the average participant in the study had a bias without even knowing it. They automatically associated black men with guns and white men with tools, black men with danger, white men with safety. When I told my brother, who's a black man who's 37 years old, um, about the findings of this study, he just looked at me and laughed with one of those laughs that's just full of pain and anguish and frustration and anger. And he said, why would anyone even fund that research? Why would anyone even bother collecting those data? Anyone who is a black man or has listened to a black man knows that we are hunted in our society, knows that we are seen as dangerous first knows that when we're walking down the street and someone sees us coming the opposite direction, they move to the other side of the street. Why would anyone even do this research? We live in this world where we're often, maybe even outside of our conscious awareness, participating in a society and in systems where some people are seen as dangerous, some people are not. Some people are seen as valuable. Some people are not. Some people are seen as qualified. Some people are not. One more study that I'll tell you about before we dive in a little bit more. And um, this study is looking at discrimination in the workplace. And some people wanted to know, some sociologists starting in 2004, although this study, like the other two, have been replicated over and over and over again, um, they wanted to know, does having a white-sounding name make you more likely to get called in for an interview when you submit your resume than having a black-sounding name. So they sent out hundreds of resumes all across the country, to, and the resumes were for the kind of entry-level jobs in corporate America. 
and all the resumes were exactly the same in terms of their qualifications. The only thing they changed was the name on the resume. And so there were, there were two, two sets of black resumes. There was a resume with a name Jamal and also a resume with Lakeisha, two names that we would associate with the black community, with black culture. And then the um, white resumes were Greg and Emily. And they sent all those out. <laughs> and they found that Greg and Emily were twice as likely to get called in for an interview than Jamal and Lakeisha, even though they had exactly the same qualifications. Over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these resumes were sent out, and the results always came back exactly the same. When I was telling, um, before I came to Duke last year, um, I was a professor at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a student body is a little over 90% white, and so um, most of my students were white students. And um, one of my students, when I told her, when I was telling the class about this study, raised her hand and said, well, Dr. Cleveland, isn't that black people's own fault for naming their kids such weird names? I mean, what do, you, what, do, what do black people expect? I mean, when you name your kid a weird name like that, then people are just going to think it's weird, and they're not going to want to hire that person. And I said, well, Mackenzie, <laughs> that's a really wonderful example of white supremacy. <laughs> Why is it that white people get to decide what's normal? White people get to be the normative, the, the center. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of those definitions so that you all have lots to talk about as a congregation and as a family. So we have this reality based on research, based on personal experience. Gosh, what do we do with this reality that we live in a world where there is racial injustice, we live in a world where there's racial inequality and inequity, where there's a racial hierarchy, and for so long, Evangelical Christians haven't really known what to do with that. If anything, evangelical Christians have seen that as a side issue, as something that has nothing to do with the Bible and nothing to do with the gospel. Um, that's, the social, that's the social justice liberal agenda, right? Like we aren't, the people who are serious about the Bible, people who are serious about the gospel, people who are serious about Jesus would never bother with that because we're just going to, you know, all go to heaven and God's going to like suck us up in the rapture straw. Um, and then just bomb the earth, right? And so, like, why bother with the actual nitty-gritty of what's going on? Um, but the beauty is that we can be biblically literate, and we can actually look at Scripture in a different way. And we're going to do that a little bit tonight. I want to give just a quick overview of some of the ways in which um, God has a heart for racial justice, Jesus Jesus demonstrated a care for racial justice. Um, Paul had a theology of the cross that included racial justice. Um, and then we're going to move into a little bit of just talking about terms and giving you all some, some language um, to use as, before, we go into, um, before, we, before we go into some Q&A. So um, I want to talk a little bit about, in spite of this reality um, of of racial injustice, there is really good news. And that's one of the reasons why I continue to be a follower of Christ, um, because the gospel is 
is a whole new way of thinking about things. That The family of God that's central to the gospel, the family of God that's central to our theology of resurrection, where, where God is making all things new and changing the way that, that things have gone, and we get to participate in that is something that really excites me. So we have this opportunity to, be, to participate in a family of God that really is a radical reversal of the ways that we, um, of the ways of our society. And Paul talks so much about this, and we're going we're gonna to get into Ephesians in a little while, but I love how Galatians 3.28, Paul straight up says, in the family of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And so much of um, Christian history has taken this verse and seen it as kind of like a colorblindness or like a... Um, See, like, let's just forget about all racial differences. Let's just forget about all gender differences. Let's just um, forget about all sorts of, like, social and economic inequality um, because we're all one. And actually, Paul is saying, let's live into these differences, but let's make space so that there's equality, so that being Jew or Gentile doesn't make you better. Paul's eradicating the hierarchy here. He's saying being male or female doesn't make you better. Being slave or free doesn't make you better. It's all about breaking down some of these hierarchies that are so indicative of our society. So a biblical basis for racial ethnic, racial and ethnic justice. Um, I'm going to just give you five quick um, points. These are not exhaustive by any means whatsoever. But the first one is simply that God isn't colorblind. God isn't down with the Galatians 3.28 translation or interpretation that says that um, racial differences don't matter. Being Jew or Greek um, or Gentile doesn't matter. In fact, all throughout scripture, God is drawing our attention to ethnic differences. And so the, the Greek... Um, the Greek word ethnos is actually one of the most frequent words in scripture. It's, it's used more frequently than love, agape, more frequently than grace, and almost as frequently as faith. And so all throughout scripture, this word ethnos um, or its counterpart in the Hebrew are, are seen and God is drawing our attention to these differences. God is saying like these differences are here and they're real and um, let's, let's wrestle with them. Another piece here is that Jesus had an ethnic identity. I love that. I love that Jesus came as a, as a human being in a, in, in a human body. We're not um, Gnostic, or at least I'm not Gnostic. I'm not going to um, put my beliefs on you, but I'm not Gnostic. And so I believe that Jesus was not a, dis, you know, we're not disembodied souls. Jesus is not a disembodied soul. He came as a human being. He was a Jewish man. And um, his, biblical historians believe that Jesus was Afro-Asiatic, kind of a mixture of black and Asian. He would probably look like someone from the Middle East now. And that's so important for us because Jesus lived out his ethnic identity. Jesus experienced a bit of a bar mitzvah when, um, when God came and spoke um, when he was being baptized by John the Baptist and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is something that was a, um, was a term that was used in bar mitzvahs at the time. And so, so much of what what Jesus experienced was rooted in his ethnic identity. Another thing is Jesus cared deeply about social inequality. We see this in so many of the stories in which Jesus was um, 
in which Jesus was living or the stories in which Jesus was telling. Um, I think of the Good Samaritan, for example, which is all about Jesus pointing out to the Jewish people that, hey, you live in a world where there's actual ethnic inequality. The Samaritans are not treated very well, and I'm going to turn everything up on its head and, and kind of elevate the Samaritan in this story as opposed to the Jewish people. The folks that you had always thought of as less than are now the ones that I'm going to elevate as more than. But it wasn't just ethnic inequality that Jesus was interested in. He was, he was, in, he was interested in all sorts of social inequality. You know, we, we see the ways in which um, Jesus stands up for the woman who was accused of adultery. In her society, women didn't have a voice. And a lot of hist biblical historians actually believe that the, the the, the man who she'd supposedly been um, in partnering with was in the lynch mob that was trying to kill her, that was trying to stone her. And of course, you can't have adultery with yourself, right? And the reason why she's often called the woman who's accused of adultery and not the woman who was caught in adultery is because women didn't have rights. If someone had just said, oh, she was, she was having adultery, there was no fair trial. There was no... Um, there was no due process. She didn't, have, she didn't get a chance to stand up and say, well, here's my side of the story. That's not how it worked for women in those days. The man's word was always the final word. And so um, Jesus, in the moment where this lynch mob was trying to kill her, literally put himself in between her and the mob and drew the attention of the mob onto himself. I, I stop and I think about that, and I'm like, wow. That would have been really dangerous for Jesus to do. I, I, lynch mobs tend not to be rational, right? They tend not to be like, hmm, let's ponder. And Jesus actually put him, said, he said, you know, I love it because he did it in a really quirky way. He, like, he kind of just started like scribbling in the sand and they're like, ooh, what's this guy doing? And then the whole mob just looks at him. And then he says this, he says this thing, you know, the, the first person who's never sinned, you throw the stone at her. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Jesus. Like, to the lynch mob, like the self-righteous lynch mob, you should, like, <laughs> challenge them on their righteousness, right? Like, that's, but Jesus was doing that because he was protecting her. He cared about social inequality, I think about the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. I've been a Young Life volunteer for a long time, and so this is a story that we tell often, but we often don't tell it this way. We don't think about the way in which Jesus was understanding the social situation, the inequality of the situation. And so there's this, there's this powerful, important man named Jairus who comes to Jesus and says, um, my, my child is sick. Please come heal my child. And Jesus, of course, is like, if you think about it in like a hipster millennial way, like Jesus was this rising voice in his community. Jesus was trying to get the word out about his message. And so now, I mean, up until this point, Jesus had mostly been like healing lepers and, you know, healing beggars and people who weren't that important in the society. And like, you know, word was getting out and, you know, his Snapchat was getting more popular and his Instagram feed and everything. But now finally, Jairus, 
this really important person in society comes to Jesus and says, please come heal me. Come, come, come heal my child. And so now, I mean, if you're thinking about it in terms of like, you know, influence, I'm, Jesus might have been like, wow, this is going to be good for my platform. It's going to be good for my message. Now the important people are coming to me. And I'm not saying Jesus did that, but if you're just thinking about it in a really human way, like this is great that now the important people are coming to Jesus and asking for help. And uh, Jesus starts walking um, with Jairus to go, and he's just surrounded by crowds, you know, just hundreds of people. And there's this woman, this woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. She was unclean. And in Jewish theology, if you're sick in the way that she was, it means you're a sinner. It means you're damned. It means that's even more of a reason to shun you because you're a bad person. And on top of it, she's a woman in this culture. And on top of it, she probably has been put out from her home. So there's a good chance that she's living on the streets. And who knows what she's needed to do in order to make ends meet, in order to feed herself. So this is someone who's kind of a pariah in society. She touches Jesus. And Mark, I love the way Mark tells it, because he says, and she was immediately healed immediately healed. But after she was healed, Jesus stops. And he says, who touched me? Which is like the dumbest question ever. And even his disciples are like, that's the dumbest question ever. There are hundreds of people touching you right now. So then why would Jesus ask the dumbest question ever? She's already been healed. Why is he asking who touched me? And then Mark says, and the woman got to tell her story. And in that moment, you see all of the attention shift from Jairus, this really important, powerful person in society, and Jesus, who also had some status. They were the ones that everyone was paying attention to. Everyone was following to see what's, what's God going to do in the life of this important man. And then all of that attention gets shifted to this woman who's been on the outside of society her whole life. And now she, the spotlight is on her. She has the platform. She gets to tell her story. And now what God is doing in this woman's life is the center of what's happening in that space and in that community. Jesus cares about social inequality. Jesus shifted the whole power structure with one question, who touched me? After she'd been healed, it was not just about her healing. It was about her voice. It was about her story. It was about making space for her. And so Jesus allowed her to tell her story. Then he still went and healed Jairus' child because Jesus loves everyone, right? <laughs> We don't, have to, we don't have to worry about um, scarcity in the family of God. There's enough Jesus for everyone. There's enough space for everyone. There's enough voice for everyone. There's enough power for everyone. The next thing um, is Paul appropriated the term reconciliation to describe the theology and sociology of the Christ. Um, oh, sorry, of the cross. Um, 
Paul's fascinating for so many reasons, but one of the things that's interesting about Paul, he's deeply, deeply political. And you see this throughout his time when, you know, like he's in trouble and he's like, but I'm a Roman citizen. You know, he pulls that card out all the time. Okay. So he's very strategic. He's like a very like um, authoritarian leader. He gets stuff done. He knows how to play the system. And so it's really interesting that Paul takes this word reconciliation to talk about what happened on the cross because reconciliation was not used in religious settings before Paul plucked it from its political setting and applied it to the theology of the cross. And so in the context of, um, in the context of um, Jewish and Gentile relations, Paul's talking about this tension as this church is, this new church is forming and there's racial ethnic division, and some people have more power than others. Um, in the broader society, Gentiles have more power because Jewish people were unoccupied people at the time, but in this burgeoning church, Jewish people had more power, and so there was this tension. There wasn't an equality. There wasn't an equity, and so he's talking about this tension, and he takes it to the, he, he references the cross and introduces this term reconciliation to the Christian world for the first time. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one human in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Right here Paul is saying everything that God did to make you no longer an alien between God and you, between you and God, also means that you're no longer aliens with each other. And so what's so interesting about this is Paul uses the term um, katalasso, which is what we translate now to reconciliation, but it's a, it's a Greek term. And it was, a, it was only known, it was only used in, in, pol- in the political sense of actually putting together peace treaties between nations and ethnic groups. Um, And it literally means to change or exchange. It means um, John DeGrucci, who's a reconciliation theologian in South Africa, would say, you know, when we're reconciled, we exchange places with the other, and and we're in solidarity with the other instead of being against the other. Another way of thinking about it is that it can be understood as exchanging places, overcoming alienation through identification, solidarity, restoring relationships, positive change, new frameworks, and a rich togetherness that is both spiritual and political. Essentially, reconciliation means all things change, all systems, all hierarchies, the ways in which we might have been alienated or now we're placed with actual solidarity, where I'm more interested in knowing what your perspective is, I'm more interested in knowing what your lived experience is, I'm more interested in knowing what your pain is, and I'm less interested in just going off of what my personal cultural experience is. So when you tell me that black lives don't matter, if I have a question about that or I don't pers- that doesn't personally resonate with me, 
all I have to say is tell me more. Help me stand in solidarity with you. That's what reconciliation means. Oftentimes, the way it's been used in Christian circles is kumbaya, you forgive, um, but nothing ever changes. The, the frameworks don't change, the power structure doesn't change, the relationships aren't truly restored. And because Paul uses this term as someone who's a member of an occupied ethnic group, he's Jewish in the Roman Empire. Yes, he does have some, has, he does have some status as, a, as a, a former member of the Sanhedrin, as someone who um, was free, as someone who was a Roman citizen. At his core, he was, a, he was an oppressed person. And so he was talking about this context of reconciliation as, as not just spiritual. He, he sort of integrates it with the spiritual, but he's thinking about it in terms of its political context of treaty making, of exchange making. The last one that I want to talk about is um, that, um, that Jesus was interested in equality and not sorry, equity and not just equality. And this, I think, is huge for how we move forward in thinking about racial justice. Jesus wasn't really interested in treating everyone equally or really requiring that you do what, um, or, that, or, or that you get what you deserve. If that were the case, we would have all had to die on the cross for ourselves. So Jesus was never interested in that. Jesus was always interested in giving us um, and helping us have what we need in order to make things right. And for him, that often meant going the extra mile. It often meant meeting us further than we were able to meet him. But oftentimes when we talk about racial justice, we, we couch it in the terms of equality. And so I think, you know, there's, there are actually some good critiques of this um, cartoon, which we can talk about if, um, if you want during the Q&A. But um, it's important for us to think about equity versus equality. Equality is treating everyone the same. But if some people have more or have been given more by society or have stolen more um, in society or for whatever reason are ahead of the game in society, um, then just treating everyone exactly the same isn't going to make things right, isn't going to make things new. Instead, we need to think about equity. What does everyone need, what does each individual person or group need in order to, um, in order for all of us to be at the same place at the table of God, for everyone to have a voice. And that might mean that some people actually get less than others. And Jesus talks about this in Scripture. This is not just like a liberal gospel sort of way of thinking about things. That's what some people think. But Jesus actually talks about this. So in Matthew 20, I go read it, Matthew 20, 1 through 16. I'll just paraphrase it for you. Um, the parable of the workers. Jesus starts by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. So Jesus is saying, this is how it is in my new family. Get on the bandwagon or not. The kingdom of heaven is like this. A landowner went in the morning to hire people to work on his land. And he hired a bunch of people, told them he would pay them a day's wage, put them to work came back midday, found more people that were still waiting around looking for work, hired them, promised he'd pay them a day's wage, put them to work, came back at the 
end of the day, with only an hour left of work, there were still people waiting around, looking for work, hired them, said he would give them a day's wage, put them to work. An hour later, he calls everyone together and says, here's your, here's your wage that I promise you for that day. And the people who had been hired in the morning were livid. Equity makes people mad. Equity, people intrinsically want equality. They were livid. How come these people who only worked an hour get paid as much as I did? But if we stop and think about it, Jesus cares about social inequality. The kingdom of heaven is a place where everyone has a space at this table. Everyone has a voice at the table. And I stop and I think about this and I'm like, well, who would get hired first? First, Well, just going back to the study that we talked about, where Jamal and Lakeisha are less likely to get an interview for the job than Emily and Greg. Well, let's think about it. Who would get hired? Who seems most fit? Who seems most appropriate? Who seems most qualified? It's the people who look like the majority. It's the people who are able-bodied. It's the people who are who maybe are documented citizens. It's the people who speak the language. It's the people who have the right dress, who look like professionals. They get hired first. Jesus comes back at noon. Now you have people who maybe don't have, as, don't have those qualifications that the dominant society decides are the qualifications. But Jesus says, I have a place for you. Jesus comes at the end of the day. Now we have people who are undocumented, people who maybe are disabled in some way, people who maybe are in a mental health crisis, and they don't look, they don't look ready for work. Maybe they're brown. Maybe they don't speak English. Maybe they don't speak the language. Jesus says, I have a place for you. I have work for you. You've been looked over all day long. People have come and hired everyone before you. But I see you, and I want you. And then Jesus hired him. And then at the end of the day, he said, everybody gets paid. And the people who got hired first were mad. Those are the people like me. I have the resume. I have the education. I speak the language. But Jesus is not interested in equality. Jesus is interested in equity. And as we think about racial and ethnic justice, we have to keep that in mind. It's not about equality. It's about equity. I want to give us a little bit of um, space to think about, gosh, you know, how do, we, how do we move forward in this conversation? You know, if perhaps we're drawn into this and we're, we're concerned about the state of racial and ethnic relations in the United States and in the, the broader global community, um, we've done some work studying biblical basis. Maybe we're going to do some more, but we're interested, we're leaned in. Where do we go with this? Well, I think part of it is having 
the same language to talk about this so we can you know, have fruitful discussions. And so the, the definitions and terms I'm going to share with you and some of the, the ways that, I am, that I'm going to talk about race are ways that in social psychology, sociology, anthropology, political science, ethnic studies, um, there's going to be some communication studies, and to a certain extent in theology, there's going to be some like consistency. So if you talk to anyone in the academic world, you'd more or less find similar terms. So let's talk a little bit about race uh, first. So um, race and ethnicity are often, um, mis um, we, we often don't have great lay definitions for them. And so I, I think it's good to just clarify those. Um, they're similar in that they both share an ideology of common ancestry. So typically when someone, um, when, when we say that someone has a race or an ethnicity, we're assuming that they're, um, that they're some sort of like, uh, way in which they're related to other people who might share that same race and or ethnicity. Um, one of the things that's different about it, though, is that um, race is socially imposed and hierarchical. So um, race is not actually... Um, real in the sense that um, certainly the effects of race are real, but the way that we think about race is, um, is pretty much just socially constructed, and it's socially constructed in a way that's, that's hierarchical. And so race only makes sense in the, context, in the context of hierarchy, and that's how it's always been throughout history, even though race hasn't always been about skin color like it is now. Um, but race, like back in um, Jesus's time, actually had to do with whether you were slave or free. And so there was a free race and there was a slave race, and that's how they thought about race. But either way, it was hierarchical. Um, so now it has more to do with skin color. Um, but the idea is that race is hierarchical in the sense that white people are at the top of the racial hierarchy, at least in the United States. And then everyone else has status in, in society to the extent to which they um, can approximate whiteness. And whiteness is this sort of just social um, category for um, elements of white culture that are sort of above everyone else. So for example, um, I'm a black woman, but we associate whiteness with uh, formal education. We associate whiteness with upward mobility. We associate whiteness with English speaking skills. We associate whiteness with linear thinking. We associate whiteness with um, kind of upfront leadership skills, authoritarian leadership skills. Um, we, so we associate whiteness with executive thinking. And so, um, and we associate whiteness with a, a certain look, right? And so typically it's um, uh, European Eurocentric features. And so to the extent to which you um, approximate those, those features or this idea of whiteness, you have status in our society. So I'm a black woman who actually has a lot of those features. I'm very, I have a world-class education. I certainly am a linear thinker. I was taught to be that way. Um, I'm, I have kind of executive leadership skills. I have um, very um, strong English language skills. Um, I have features. Physical features that are, I have lighter skin, I have smaller lips, I have more Eurocentric physical features relative to a lot of other black women. And so I'm about as close to being a white man as you can be and still be a black woman, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just a fact, but then if you look at, 
if you look at the status I'm afforded in society, the status that I'm afforded in society reflects that. We have a racial hierarchy. Some of my closest friends are low-income, dark-skinned, informally educated, single moms who have observations about race and society and God and theology that are 10 times more astute than mine, and nobody even notices them, much less wants to hear what they have to say. So this is a socially constructed hierarchy, and there's a supposed benefit. I don't think there's an actual benefit, but there's a supposed benefit to climbing your way to the top. And so if you're white, you want to live into that. If you're Asian, you kind of want to live into that. And sometimes Asian people can approximate whiteness in very powerful ways. And the idea is that race is really just anti-blackness. People want to distance themselves as much as possible from being black because black people are at the bottom of the racial hierarchy, particularly low-income, informally educated black people. Actually, if you, um, if you look at the life expectancy rates, um, the lowest life expectancy rates of any, of any demographic group in the United States, and also the group that's most likely to be shot and killed by police in the United States, is actually low-income, houseless, homeless, transitional, black transgender women. So if you think about the racial hierarchy, that's about as far from white men as possible. It's about as far from this construct of whiteness as possible. Another thing about race is that it's unitary. Because it's socially constructed, like, it's, we've just decided this, right? So it's unitary. You can basically only be one race, which is why oftentimes biracial people, multiracial people have a really hard time finding space in our society because our society doesn't make space for that. And so it's like you can either be black or white or Asian. Those are the three races um, that sort of in the field we've agreed upon, um, and you can't really be a mix of those. So oftentimes, like my friends who are mixed black and white have to try to fit themselves into one or the other, and usually it's a bad fit because we just don't really have a lot of space um, for, for multiracial people. Another thing is um, you don't really have any control over your race. It's how you're perceived by others. And so um, because really race, racism in our world um, in the United States is really anti-blackness, there was the one drop rule that was really, um, that came about in the 20th century that if you just have one drop of black blood, then you're black. Um, and so it really has to do with how you're perceived by other people. One of my students um, one, a few years ago was um, a guy who was half black and half white. His mom was black. His dad's white, but he looks white. He just he doesn't look mixed at all. He just looks white. He passes as white. But he was in my class. I remember the first day coming home and saying to my sister, there's this white kid in my class, but he's black. Like, I knew it. I knew it because I was like, he is way too comfortable with me as his, like, professor than any of these other white guys. And so I was like, there's something about this kid. And then sure enough, we got coffee and he's like, my mom's black. I was like, I knew it. I knew it. Right. But he's white according to our society. Right. I mean, I, anyone who would talk to him would just assume he's white. He gets afforded all the privilege and power of a white man, even though 
he's half black because you don't have any control. It's how you're perceived by others. Um, the difference with ethnicity is that um, it's actually a cultural identity of a group from a nation state. So um, ethnicity would be French or Ghanaian or Korean in the race. Which, so if someone's Korean, their ethnicity would be Korean. Their race would be Asian. Gets a little bit more complicated, though. Um, so like, if you're Cuban, your ethnicity's Cuban, but you could be black, white, or Asian as a Cuban, depending on what race you get categorized into. I know black Cubans, I know white Cubans, I know Asian Cubans. So the category of Hispanic is like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, strange, it's a strange category in the context of race and ethnicity, because it's not a race or an ethnicity. Hispanic is really a group of ethnicities, but not exactly a race. So there are black Hispanics, there are white Hispanics, there are Asian Hispanics. Um, indigenous, native folks would be considered Asian. So you could be Hopi, um, and that would be considered Asian as well. So your ethnicity would be Hopi, your um, race would be Asian. My ethnicity is African-American, my race is black. Um, and so um, typically it's just basically based on your nation state and you can actually claim multiple identities, which makes sense, right? You can be French and Belgian, or you can be Dutch and German or something like that. Um, so there's a wonderful documentary that I think everybody should watch that's called Race, the Power of Illusion. It's only three um, episodes. It's amazing. It'll blow your mind. Um, but some of the things that come out of this I thought I would share with you all because there are important facts about race. If race is socially constructed, then we should definitely know like, what exactly that means and why it's been constructed to be the way that it is, particularly here in the United States. So I will say the way that we think about race now, which is based on skin color, is a super modern idea. It came out, um, it's only about 275 years old at this point. So we often think of as like racial differences as being these like forever, they go back to the Garden of Eden or wherever the beginning was. Um, that's not true, actually. Um, race is a really modern idea and it doesn't have any genetic basis at all whatsoever. So the Human Genome Project, which um, spent about 15 plus years mapping every bit of DNA in our bodies, it was like the hundreds of scientists were working on this, billions of dollars were spent on it. Um, they found that all humans share 99.9% .9 of our DNA. So all the variation that we see in the world is accounted for by point 0.1% difference. And so we share 99.9% .9 of our DNA with each other. We share about 90, 98% of our DNA with other primates, monkeys, gorillas, etc. We share about 94.5% of our DNA with bananas. So like, <laughs> we're all basically the same and also basically bananas, like at the same time, because there's no, like, there's no genetic basis. We're all, we're the same. Our, gen, our, like, our genetics are exact, are the same. Hum, all human life is formed very similarly genetically. And so this, um, this really is a social construction. Um, there are no human subspecies. Unlike most other animals, unlike most other living things like plants and stuff, there are no human subspecies. There's one human race, and that's it. Um, another thing 
that follows, of course, the skin color really is only skin deep. And one of the things that's fascinating about this is that the Human Genome Project found that most of the variation that we see is actually within races, not between races. So that like tiny, tiny, tiny bit of DNA variation that we see happens within races. So I'm actually more likely to be more different genetically from another black person than from a white person. So there's, there's no actual genetic basis for, for differences between races. Um, going back to this idea of um, race as a modern idea. So race really came about, at least the way that we think about it in the United States, which is based on skin color and basically based on anti-blackness, um, came about in the context of slavery and also the um, American Revolution. Because what was happening all around the world <laughs> was um, the Enlightenment, and people were using all these terms like freedom and liberty, and you know every single human being should have the opportunity to do whatever they want and to follow their dreams and pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And this was happening all the way around the world and, of course, was igniting revolution here in the United States. But on the, at the same time, the United States was founded on, and the entire economy and political power of the United States was founded on the unpaid labor of enslaved peoples. And so in the United States, they had this tension that they were dealing with. On the one hand, they were like, but freedom, everyone should have freedom. And on the other hand, they're like, but we really have this whole system that's based on not um, on the opposite of freedom for a huge chunk of people. And so the whole way to make sense of this tension was to say, yeah, freedom for everyone who's a, who's a real human. And black people aren't humans. They're three-fifths of a human. That's what's in the constitu Constitution. And so our whole understanding of race and anti-blackness came from trying to make sense of these two, these two conflicting ideas. Yes, we will give freedom, but only to land-owning white men. And there begins the hierarchy, where whiteness is at the top and everyone else is at the bottom. So race and freedom really evolved together here in the United States. Um, and race was really like, um, you know, a post-hoc um, justification for the social inequalities, right? It's not like before um, people were brought to the United States as enslaved peoples, there was already this concept of black people are less than. It was actually when people were brought to the United States, there weren't any categories of black and white. When white people came to the United States, they didn't come as white people, they came as Dutch or English or German or Portuguese, right? There, the whole concept of white came out as a, as a way to justify the social inequalities that were, um, that were happening um, in slavery. Um, so the thing is, is even though race isn't biological, even though there's no genetic basis for it, racism is actually, of course, very real. And we can talk about um, some of the ways in which that continues to impact people, too. Um, and the last thing, too, and this goes back to the beginning, is colorblindness, of course, is not going to end racism. And so that because race is so real, we have to think about the consequences. Um, so one thing I'm going to do quickly as we talk about consequences is um, talk, give you just a few more terms to think about um, 
what, um, what, what sort of happens around race and how, and how to spot um, racial inequality happening right in our midst. So um, the first term that I want to talk about is stereotype. Now, um, stereotypes are cognitive. Stereotypes are thoughts. And it's a belief that associates a group of people with traits. It doesn't have to be based on race. Of course, you know, we can have stereotypes about, um, you know, the Giants versus the A's or Giants fans versus A's fans. A's fans are the people. Ace fans are the people. Giants fans are the executive corporate people. (laughs) The real people are Ace fans, right? So that's a stereotype. Um, I'm from Oakland. So um, (laughs) so that's a stereotype, right? It's any sort of belief. Stereotypes can be positive. Stereotypes can be negative. But they're cognitive. They're thoughts. They're beliefs. Okay. Prejudice is... um, an emotion, it's a feeling, it's negative, it's always negative. There's no such thing as positive prejudice, okay? So it's negative, it's that just gross feeling maybe that you have. It might be a fear, it might be anger, but whatever it is, it, it's, it's, it's felt negatively, it's experienced negatively, and it's based on someone's membership in a certain group. So when my brother says, you know, people seem to be afraid simply because he's a 6'1 black man, that's prejudice. It's a feeling, okay? Um, discrimination is when behavior is directed against someone because of the membership of a certain of their of, a, of their group. So when someone walks to the other side of a street, when my brother's walking down the street, that's discrimination. That's a behavior that's directed against someone. Or when he's just shopping at a grocery store and people are following him around. Or when he just graduated from Yale Divinity School last year, but in his final year there, he was stopped and frisked four times by um, New Haven police officers while he was just walking home from school to his apartment. That's discrimination, okay? It's behavior that's directed at him because he's a member of a certain group. So stereotypes are beliefs. Prejudice is a feeling. Discrimination is a behavior or a set of behaviors. Now, all three of these things that we just talked about, anybody can do. I can be discriminatory, I can be prejudiced, I can have stereotypes, anybody can. White people, black people, Asians, doesn't matter who you are, you can do this, you probably do do this if you stop and think about it and examine and even let people examine you. Okay. Um, Racism, on the other hand, is a little bit different. Racism is when people in power are prejudiced or discriminate based on race or ethnicity, the implication being people who are lower than them on the racial hierarchy. So that means that not everybody can be racist. Only people who have power can be racist. So if you think about racism as like prejudice or discrimination plus power. Prejudice or discrimination from atop the hierarchy. So if a white person is working in a store and is following my brother around, that's not just discrimination, that's racism because it's discrimination plus power, because my brother comes from lower on the racial hierarchy. More broadly, structural racism is not just an individual's behavior, which which our definition of racism might suggest that racism just happens when individual people do things. Um, Structural racism is actually kind of the broader cultural system in which 
there's historical, cultural, institutional, even interpersonal um, spaces in which one group, whites, in the case of racism in the United States, are routinely advantaged over everybody else. So an example of structural racism would be the ways in which, um, you know, the Jamal and Lakeisha versus Emily and Greg study. We live in a culture where simply based on the type of name you have, you are perceived as less, less than other people. Another example of structural racism would be our, um, our U.S. justice system. I teach a class right now, and, and um, my, I teach my Martin Luther King and Malcolm X class in, in a prison right now. It's in the maximum security prison in um, Raleigh. It's a men's prison. And 15 of my students are guys who are currently incarcerated, and then the rest of my students are male Duke Divinity students who come into the prison with me every week. And so just being in that, I'm just reminded over and over again of the injustice of the prison system. Because the fact of the matter is, is race is the number one predictor of whether you get sentenced with a death penalty or not. The number one predictor, not your actual um, offense, not your record, not even your socioeconomic status. It's race. So that would be a great example of structural racism. Certainly race plays a huge role in even sentencing, which helps to explain why pretty much everyone in my class is black, even though um, the vast majority of offenses that are committed are not by black people. Um, and so one way of thinking about this is um, Peggy McIntosh, who um, is a white woman who thought a lot about uh, race in a structural way, um, said this, in my class and place, I did not recognize myself as a racist because I was taught to see racism only in individual acts of meanness by members of my group. Never in indiv invisible systems conferring unsought racial dominance on my group from birth. I think of racism as something that, I think of race, racists as anyone who benefits from the system of racism, whether they're actively participating in it or not. There really, there's no such thing as, a, as a, um, an, an innocent bystander in this. You're either benefiting or you're like a revolutionary fighting it. There's no, there's no in between. And the, one of the ways I think about this is like, we live in a capitalist system. And I participate in that system because I have like a bank account. I benefit from the system. And so therefore I am a capitalist. Whether I you know, claim to be or not, whether I deny it or not, it's like I use money, I buy things. I put money in the bank. I participate, I benefit from this system. And so racism is, a similar, is similar. If you benefit from it, then technically you're complicit in it. You're participating in it. And you have the option of continuing to benefit and being like, well, or like the student in my class at Bethel who said, um, well, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about, you know, white privilege and white supremacy and white, you know, whites being atop the racial hierarchy and... I mean, as a white person, I'm kind of like, well, shouldn't I just like be grateful to God that I'm white? I love undergrads. They're just so honest, you know? They're so honest. Like, and I was like, well, I appreciate you saying that because like, I'm sure a lot of other people are thinking that, right? And so we have an opportunity because, I mean, so many people benefit from the system the way it is. But it's the opposite of the Jesus way, and we're also cutting ourselves off from being participants in the family of God. Um, 
Okay, I'm going to say this really quick and then we're going to have Q&A because um, I think this is a super helpful way of thinking about the way these systems work. So structural racism, it's kind of hard to like um, map our, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap our heads around the ways that it works and the ways it shows up in like our small groups, um, the ways it shows up in our churches, the ways it shows up in our workplaces and our classrooms, um, really everywhere in, in society. Um, but Marcus and Connor, specifically Hazel Marcus, who's a really well-known um, cultural psychologist, developed this culture cycle, which is a simple way to think about um, who thrives in our systems and who um, struggles in our systems. Who, um, if we have a culture, who sort of gets propelled through that culture and upheld, and who sort of gets silenced and waylaid and perhaps even incarcerated, etc. And so... She says, in our culture, um, there are ideas. Many of these ideas are not even spoken. Sometimes we're not even conscious of them. But ideas um, certainly shape the institutions that we have in our culture, which shapes the interactions, which shapes the eyes, the individuals in that culture. Um, so an idea in our culture that's been around for a really long time is that uh, black people are subhuman. Black people are chattel. Black people are things. Black people are to be used. Black people are to be feared. Black people are not human. Black people are not created in the image of God. Black people are nothing like Jesus. So if you just think about those broad ideas and how they've shaped American culture for centuries and continue to, even as parts of them were addressed, they just sort of whiteness just morphed in another way. And so, you know, you see um, slavery finally has its end, but then you see the rise of lynching, and then lynching kind of has its end, and then you see the rise of Jim Crow, and Jim Crow kind of has its end, and then you see the rise of the new Jim Crow. And so I, these ideas continue to flourish that black people are subhuman. Black people are not created in the image of God. Black lives don't matter. So then you look at institutions like our judicial system or our education system or even the ways that um, community, the, the whole like the, the rise to suburban communities and white flight and, so, and things like that in our society, these institutions reflect those ideas. And that's why you see that Schools that have lots of black and brown kids are underfunded relative to schools that have lots of white kids. Or you see that um, um, people in our society who are black and brown are much more likely to be stopped in their cars and searched for drugs, even though, they're, even though white people are actually more likely to actually have drugs on their persons and in their cars. So you have these institutions, and those shape our interactions. So police officers might actually be good people who want to do the right thing and might even love Jesus and love their neighbor, but they've been shaped and trained by these institutions that reflect these broader ideas. And so that's going to impact their interactions in the community. And now they're going to be walking around with a gun fearing people like my brother who are just trying to prepare to be a pastor. Or even if he weren't trying to be prepared to be a pastor, he certainly doesn't deserve to be shot and killed. So that in those interactions then influence who, who are the individuals in our society who flourish. It's white people. It's 
It's people who are the least black. It's the people who conform to whiteness. And then because those are the folks who flourish, those are the people who then can shape interactions. Those are the people who then shape institutions. They become judges and attorneys and police officers and pastors and the people of influence and teachers, and then they shape ideas. And so this cycle just goes around and around and around. Okay, I'm going to stop with this and just end with an amazing Henry Nouwen quote because <laughs> there's so much that we can talk about. But I love the way Henry Nouwen, who was a contemplative like myself, I'm a kind of a budding mystic activist or contemplative activist. Um, and I think the more you spend time in the presence of God, I think the more you spend time opening your heart to God, you can't help but turn towards society. You don't just stay in your little cocoon, in your little Jesus bubble. Um, but you actually have to start thinking about cross-cultural advocacy. Gosh, what does it look like to stand in solidarity, to exchange places with, to engage in the spiritual and political process of reconciliation? And Henry Nouwen got there because of his work as a mystic. And he said, why do I spend so many hours talking about the individual pains of people while I leave the society that creates it unchanged? And that's my question for you all. Thanks. Thank you so much. That was incredible. There's a lot to uh, there's a lot to talk about now. Uh, a lot of questions. I know that you probably have both theological questions and practical questions. Um, I'd really love to to do some practical stuff. Okay. So um, I have a million questions, but uh, let's just let's just raise your hand and we'll get started with these questions. So who There's wants to kick there. us off down here? Okay, we're right here. So in your opinion, do you think that the way that we approach worship is actually a reflection as far as getting as far away from black as possible? And one form of worship is seen as being more holy, more thoughtful, and another form of worship that might involve clapping or excitement is seen as less? I think that it's worthwhile to look at the culture, apply the culture cycle analysis to every aspect of Western Christianity. Western Christianity is almost entirely synonymous with white supremacy, unfortunately. Um, so many of the ways, um, yeah, I mean, so much of the way that um, church is done, or at least seen like you know seen as valuable in the west really reflects white notions of god and white notions of holiness um, and um, devalues a lot of other cultural contributions one of my colleagues is um his name's jay cameron carter he wrote a book about race that was uh, that came out a few years ago and it's a really big deal. It's, it's heavy sledding, so it's hard to get through, but it's really brilliant. And he kind of shows that um, the whole concept of racism 
at least racism based on ethnicity, goes back to Western Christians' um, desire to um, distance Jesus from his ethnic background. So it's rooted in anti-Semitism, and he kind of draws a connection between anti-blackness and anti-Semitism. And so I think, we, I think that doesn't mean that everything is bad about Western Christianity, but there's so much that's really rooted in racism, really, yeah. Uh, thank you, first of all. Um, my question is about action. So um, pretty simply, it's how, do, how would you recommend putting the ideas that you've discussed here into action this evening or tomorrow? Yeah, thank you. I think the first, um, the first huge step is to listen and to listen well. Um, I think the um, instinct is to, to fix it. And I know that's certainly my instinct, but I think that um, there's a lot of work that any privileged person, not just people who are racially privileged, need to do before we're ready to actually be useful. Because oftentimes we haven't engaged in the self-reflection and the self-emptying. Um, and we've been so poisoned by our, um, our uh, participation in these systems and also our status um, higher up the ladder. Because Jesus is just way more connected to people lower on the ladder. And so um, listening well and then believing people when they tell you something that doesn't vibe with your worldview. Yeah. Believing and honoring, yeah. Uh, so you said that anyone who benefits from racism is a racist. So how do you... How does someone who is benefiting stop and become a revolutionary, like you said? Yeah. Okay, so definitely listen well. I think there are so many good ways to be an ally. Um, and if you actually Google white ally, you'll get like millions of um, articles and books. And so, um, I mean, I can, I can give you examples of people who are pretty much devoting their entire lives to racial justice, and um, but it's a it's not um, it doesn't look very heroic, and it actually um, is a series of small steps. But I think it's divesting oneself of whiteness. So kind of just kind of looking at um, all the ways in which one might benefit from the system. And I'm not just saying white people because people like me have to divest myself of whiteness too because I benefit from whiteness in some ways. Um, and then thinking about okay, so what? How can I empty myself in the same way that Jesus did? Um, and Paul talks about that in Philippians 2, um, so that I'm in the same way that Jesus did in the example I gave. I'm creating space, and I'm even putting myself in positions where I um, might take a backseat so that someone like the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years can tell their story, can have a voice can be the center of t attention, and not just attention, but the center of the community. I guess this is a kind of a follow along with all the, the other comments or questions that have been asked. I guess my understanding of, I guess, where, what city are we in? 
San Francisco. I'm a traveling type. Um, we use a lot of terminology, ta uh, terminology um, as it relates to like this issue of scarcity. Like uh, we don't have the emotional capacity, you know, to, to grow in our, our relationship. Or we're very selective because of our emotional capacity. You know, mm -hmm. bandwidth. You know, we use that a lot. You know, we we only we value more organic, you know, relationships and natural affinities. And I mean, but these are kind of based on the realities that we, we struggle with in being professionals and busy. You know, this, this reality of that, we have a lot of things to do, but there's also the, as you're saying, there's a lot of effort that is invested in building, you know, community and cross-cultural competency, so to speak. I guess from that context of where we are as professionals, as young people, singles and of married, if you could maybe share your own personal um, stories with how how this has been, I guess, walked out with you, um, whether yeah. it's been as you communicating as a black person, reaching across, you know, different cultures, yeah. um, different levels of privilege, and, yeah. and maybe examples of what you've seen yeah. from, from other groups that would be helpful. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a lot. Okay, so um, here's what I want to say about that. This is costly. And it should be, because it's the work of the cross. So there's no shortcut, and there's no way you can walk down this road without completely changing your life. So you have to decide. I think, you know, you have to count the cost. You have to, you know, imagine your life one way and imagine it the other way, although it'll be hard to imagine it the way of reconciliation because it'll blow your mind. And you can't even, honestly, like, we don't have the capacity to even imagine how excruciating and amazing it is. Um, but I think it's um, so many of us, particularly people who've grown up in the church, but also people who just like recently came to church, we've been discipled to make it all about us. And we've been discipled for like the music to be our vibe and the pastor to have exactly our political beliefs and um, for everyone to sort of like accommodate our world and accommodate our like personal growth or journey or whatever that we're on. And that's just not really the way of the cross, which also means it's not the way of the resurrection. So we have to decide, I mean, do I want, like, do I want to participate in the resurrection or not? Because I can't do it without dying. And um, I love the way that um, Father Greg Boyle talks about the um, Beatitudes, because he says the Beatitudes are not a spirituality, they are a geography. And he says we should actually change blessed, blessed, blessed from you're in the right place. So not blessed are the poor in spirit, but you're in the right place when you're with the poor in spirit. You're in the right place when you're with the peacemakers because he, it's so true. Like that's where Jesus is. It's so clear if you look through scripture, Jesus rolls with like the people who aren't in this room. Like Jesus doesn't roll with the professionals. Jesus doesn't roll with the upwardly mobile. Jesus doesn't roll with the people with master's degrees. And so that's not to say that like we don't get to participate <laughs> and that Jesus doesn't love us. Like Jesus loves the Jairuses too. But um, we're missing out. And I, I know from my own life that that's meant um, really changing the way that I spend time, who I spend time with, um, where I, how I spend money. Um, it's been radical. 
I've quit jobs several times so that I can make more space in my life for being with people. Um, I've moved all over the place in order to follow this call, and there's not one day that I would choose another way because of the, the fruits of it. Yeah. But it's not for the faint of heart. Hi, uh, I have a question. It's a little bit long, so I'm hoping to communicate it as clearly as, as I can. So I was watching at ESPN a while back, and then it was a segment where Stephen A. Smith and uh, Skip Bayless were debating race. Specifically, they were talking about how Mark Cuban made a comment about how if you saw a black guy in a hoodie and a bald white guy with tattoos, that he would be kind of on guard. And for equity's sake, I suppose we should just throw in there like an Asian guy who is also bald, tatted up, and... Maybe he's like a gang member or something. Well, he looks like one. So my question is twofold. One, uh, so what do you think about those comments? And two, uh, human beings, we stereotype just to process large amounts of information efficiently. So for example, uh, if I see a tiger, the stereotype is, well, that tiger's dangerous. He might bite me, so I'm gonna stay away. But at the same time, you know, if, if, I, didn't, if, if I was trying to fight my stereotypical instinct and mm -hmm. say, Maybe this tiger is the exception. Maybe he won't bite me. <laughs> yeah. You know, where do you draw the line in, yeah. in practical terms? Yeah. Okay. So the first one, who, who said that? Mark Cuban? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So he brings up an interesting point. So I think, I think what he's talking about might have to do with intersectionality. Because the white, bald guy with the tattoos might come from a different class, or maybe, maybe not. Um, what do I think about that? Okay, I think that at the end of the day, in the United States, given the history that we have, race trumps a lot of things. And um, I think there are some other um, powerful divisions in our society, but because of intersectionality, um, which is this idea that sometimes people, like myself, inhabit multiple identities, and so we get, like, um, uh, a, um, how, what's the term I'm thinking of? Um, we, the, we the, the effect sort of multiplies. So I deal with being a woman in our society, and I also deal with being black in our society, and sometimes, a lot of the times, it's like double whammy. Um, and so what he's talking about is he might be talking about a white man who's kind of marginalized by society and then also a black man who's marginalized by society, two men, but the, other, the, the black man has race on top of it. And so I would, I would disagree with this statement and just say, um, sure, you might be afraid of the white man, but typically white men who might seem a little bit scary because of some group that they are, that they, uh, are a member of, they aren't being gunned down by police. Um, and they aren't being incarcerated at ridiculous rates. So I would say that. The, the second piece about stereotyping is so true, and actually we, we categorize everything, not just animals, but we categorize you know, time and the eras and you know, states and the blue states and red states, and, and this is all to help us, right? I mean, it's to help us to make quick decisions, to not use up all of our cognitive energy. Um, the problem, and this is where I think the... Um, Tiger metaphor, like all metaphors, eventually um, <laughs> uh, doesn't, 
doesn't ultimately help us is that when our stereotypes dishonor the image of God in someone, then we're really in trouble. And so a lot of times stereotypes are they just categorizing that help us make sense of our world. But when the stereotype leads us to see less of God in someone, that's really problematic. That's good. Over there. Hi, Christina. Um, thanks, uh, thanks for sharing. One, my question was kind of related to the action question. So you mentioned that you know, there are these systems and social constructs that in many ways kind of compel minority groups to approximate and almost assimilate with uh, the dominant culture in order to succeed mm -hmm. or, or even be heard. Mm -hmm. um, it's something I personally observed growing up in the Midwest Mm -hmm. So my, my question is, you know, in addition to kind of, you know, on a community basis, you know, listening and having empathy for our mm -hmm. peers, how are we to engage with authority figures and state officials yeah. it, as a Christian community? How, how do we do that in a positive way? It just, mm -hmm. sound, it just seems like maybe perhaps this is the dominant, the way that the media and the dominant culture kind of responds, but it seems like the language uh, and actions of rebellion and protest sometimes... Um, contradict or sometimes are looked down upon. So I'm wondering kind of what, what examples do you see as uh, a Christian um, way, in a Christ-like way yeah. of, of responding? Yeah. Well, I think pretty much any time um, someone tries to disrupt the status quo, it's looked down upon and seen as inappropriate and you need to use proper channels or whatever. Um, you know, Colin... Um, what is it, Kaepernick, right? Um, you know, he was like protesting in the most peaceful way possible and he still was vilified. And so I think it's, um, I think the Christ-like way has been so well um, demonstrated by like MLK and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and folks like that, that all of them were criminals. They were criminalized for doing it the Christ-like way. Um, and for protesting peacefully but forcefully. So I think um, my best, I think my encouragement is to just get involved with like nonviolent protests that are happening in the community and on the terms of community members, like, like not necessarily saying like, hey, this is like our theological way of doing it, but really standing in solidarity. If you were gonna exchange places with the other, then you go join the local group that's doing work here in um, San Francisco and you say, we're doing it on your terms and we're not going to um, be the moral high ground and decide whether you're doing it right or not, but we're just gonna stand in solidarity. Yeah. I was reflecting on the first exchange in Q&A uh, and the concept of white supremacy came up. And I think you rightly acknowledged that our country has a really horrific, very violent history in many ways. My question though is this, even as we acknowledge the terrible history of our country, I think I'm, I, I actually felt sensitive as, as that conversation was happening. I wouldn't wanna alienate uh, brothers and sisters in the room who are, are white and have a history that may have participated in that history from connecting with issues because reminders are so copious of the history. So even as we acknowledge things were terrible and awful, can you just give some tips on how to uh, hold that 
as, as a truth of our nation, and it's a terrible truth, but also not, uh, not bring it up with such weight that we might even shut down people around us. Hmm. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is like shame, I think. And it's, some, it's a very common response to this sort of conversation is to um, um, feel like, kind of feel immobilized by the realities. And that's why I think it's so important to go back to even the idea that Jesus came to the world at, as a human being in a body with a sexuality and um, an ethnicity. Because I think uh, as people who are created in the image of God, um, we were born the way that we were born because God ordained that. And that's beautiful. And we're part of the human story, which is full of sin, but also full of grace and truth. And I think that white people or people who were born into middle class and higher families or people who were born in the United States or born in English-speaking families or born in families that gave them access to formal education or were able-bodied, I mean, anyone who identifies with any privileged group, you were created that way. And that's beautiful and you are good. And to acknowledge that you have participated in or benefited in systems is not to say that you're bad. It's not shameful. The way I tell my, talk, to, talk about it with my students is making you white doesn't mean that you are inherently at fault. It just means that you've inherited a fault. And as a white person, you have power in our society to be a good listener, to stand in solidarity, to exchange places, to be part of that group of people who maybe gets picked at 9 a.m. in the morning by the landowner and gets the job, but refuses to throw a fit when everyone else gets opportunities too. <laughs> Um, and that's the, that's the wonderful gift that white people and other privileged people can play. There's, in the family of God, there's space for everyone. Everyone's affirmed, and everyone um, is needed. The thing I will add is that if you have been first, <laughs> your space in the family of God, which is crucial, is last. Because Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. So it's an important role to play, this, this sort of role of downward mobility. But it's, it's crucial. And it's honorable. Time for just a couple more. Um, so confronting the reality of subhuman treatment of black people and other minorities can result in intense anger, frustration um, that can be paralyzing. So have you felt this process and can you talk about your own experience in the faith of overcoming it? I feel it every single day. Every single day. Um, if you are woke, if you are alive and you are sensitive to these issues and you're willing to think about culture cycle and systemic racism and systemic sexism and everything, you will see it everywhere. And um, it feels like you get body slammed every three seconds. There, I mean, ignorance really is bliss in some ways. Um, and so I have like a whole regimen of spiritual practices 
that I have in place to help me cope with the pain of this work and also stay hopeful in the midst of it because I want to be awake and alive to the pain so that I can actually um, engage it. Um, so I've personally, I mean, oh, I could tell you, oh my gosh, the, it's extensive. But um, I will say um, every, I, I did a study of like all of the most impressive um, inspirational worldwide leaders of faith who do justice and they all were like mystics too they were deeply deeply contemplative and so often we like see them as complete opposites you know it's like they're like the people over there meditating and then they're the people over here like fighting for justice and they like don't talk um and I've found that the people who are able to stay in it for the long haul and to face disillusionment every single day and get through it um, and to the other side with true hope um, are people who have a deep, deep, deep contemplative spiritual practice, whether that's contemplative prayer, some form of meditation or walking or, I mean, I read the slave spirituals all the time because they balance lament and hope in such profound ways. And I pray those and I sing those. Um, but I have just a lot of practices that are just really contemplative and I make a lot of space in my life for that. Yeah. So good. First of all, thank you. Um, I think it was helpful while I've seen the definitions that you put up there to be able to kind of really apply those and think about how they apply to our, our society in general. Um, I was kind of thinking through on, the, on, on all of this and something I think I've been just been thinking the past year or so. Um, while I was very excited to see uh, a black president become president or black, black male become president, um, I, I'm, I'm disillusioned by the actions that have been happening in our country over the past few years and, and uh, especially looking at the political sphere and what's been happening there as well. Um, have you thought about what, what is causing our, our current um, racial, uh, I guess, I don't know what really to call it, but it seems like there is an, an increasing amount of racism that we see in our country. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you have it, any uh, thoughts on that or perspectives on what's actually happening. Sure, yeah, you know, I don't think racism has increased at all. I think um, it's, um, it looks different than it used to. Um, and I think because of social media, there's uh, a lot of stories are getting out that, um, but I mean, like the stories that we're that we're hearing all the time, are like police brutality and stuff in black communities, those like those have been happening since, you know, slavery. Um, I think that what um, I, I think that white society is kind of going through existential angst right now. I think that um, President Obama sort of like. Um, his election sort of put that at the forefront, but really society's been changing a lot um, over the last 50 years. One of my colleagues at Duke has actually um, just got a course approved to teach next semester. It's called White Apocalypse. Um, <laughs> and she's actually looking, she's, she's in his, a church historian, but she's like obsessed with young adult novels. And so she's actually like, it, with all her seminary students, gonna be reading all of these young adult novels that really are about white angst. Um, 
and how like the white world is ending, but like no one else's world is ending. So it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> but so if you think about the, sh the cultural shifts, they've been astounding. Um, I was in Barcelona last spring on spring break and I ran into this old white dude. He's probably like in his late 60s. And he was um, telling, we, were, we ended up talking about race because that's what I do all the time. And so um, <laughs> he was telling me how like when he grew up actually in the South, the only black people he actually knew were the domestic workers in his home. And he said that even as like an 11, 12 year old, he, he so misunderstood race that um, he thought that the domestic workers were white people who just hadn't showered recently. Like, they could, they could clean off their dark skin. So that's how alienated he was and how much the hierarchy, the racial hierarchy was evident in his life. And that racial hierarchy still exists. Like, let's be clear, white men are still at the top of it. But um, it looks really different, and their place at the top is a little bit more threatened than it was when this guy was growing up. So if you think just over the course of this, he's not that old, but like, you know, the course of one baby boomer's lifetime, the world has changed a lot. And we kind of had this conversation where he was just like, yeah, like now I'm on vacation rubbing elbows with a black woman who has the money to be on the same vacation as me. And like, my son um, is just as likely to be a student in your class as a student of a white, you know, with a white professor. And so that's just so different. And I think um, as the global south has moved to the United States, that's caused a lot of angst because now we're not like a white dominant society, but you go places like, and you hear other languages all the time and other music and other, you know, other influences. And I think when you've been accustomed to being in charge, it's really scary. And so it's like, you know how like a, a kid will act out if like, they're not getting their way. It's like that, like white people are acting out, you know? Like, and I think it comes from this angst of like, wait a second, we, everything's always been my way. And I will just really quickly tell you this study. Some sociologists did a study and they found that when white men um, are forced to uh, participate in a culture where there is real equality, like they don't get advantages because oftentimes white people aren't even aware of the advantages they get. Um, so when those advantages are taken away and they're actually just treated like everybody else, the psychological experience of it feels like discrimination to them. The psychological, the psychological experience of white men being treated like everybody else is exactly the same psychological experience as like people of color actually being discriminated against. It's not the same, <laughs> right? It's not the same, but it feels horrible because they've benefited and benefited and benefited and now those are taken away. It's like, you know, a kid has a toy and then it's taken away and the kid just kind of freaks out. Um, and so I think I'm sensitive to that and I have compassion because I think it's real trauma. Like it's, um, but I think it needs to, you know, it's not as traumatic as like actual discrimination. And I think we need to keep that in mind too. Yeah. Hi, so um, I had the privilege of traveling through the South a couple weeks ago and I got to visit a bunch of different civil rights landmarks. Um, in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, and uh, it was just a really amazing experience. Some of it was really emotionally heavy and, and hard to deal with, but also I just found that there was like a lot of just beautiful hope. Um, mm -hmm. I think the, the thing that hit me the most was 
I got to go to Martin Luther King's house in, uh, mm -hmm. in Montgomery, Alabama. And the tour director was telling me that on the porch of the house in, uh, I think it was like 1956, um, the house was bombed. Mm -hmm. And uh, Coretta, his wife, her best friend, and her seven-week-old daughter were all in that house. And um, if you stay on the porch, you can still see a crater of the bomb explosion still on that porch. And uh, I th that, like, that was obviously like very, very heavy. But I think the thing that hit me the most is that the tour director told me that um, Coretta's father told her that he wanted her to like to leave and to move. And she said, mm -hmm. I'm not moving. I'm sticking by my husband. I'm sticking by this mm -hmm. cause. And I'm, yeah, I'm just not, even just telling that story just gives me the chills. And um, I, I left with a lot of hope. And then as I came back to the Bay, um, I still love this place so dearly, but at the same time, um, I think I just have a better perspective of how easy it is to um, just be sucked in by the culture of, um, there's just so much convenience and just a spirit of like, kind of self-fulfillment like self and just kind of self-centeredness mm -hmm. um, hidden and not really said in a really dark way, but in a, just in a really like, a, hey, like you deserve this. And um, I think also I've been battling more with this idea of like rest and Sabbath and like how do we, mm -hmm. um, how do we not like overwork ourselves and understand that like we're loved by God mm -hmm. regardless of like how much work we do. And so um, I think you might have kind of alluded to this before with like the spiritual practices, but um, can you kind of speak to what it means to still be like very active and to care about these causes and injustices very well while still working in a culture that kind of tells us that we shouldn't and we should just kind of celebrate the life that we have mm -hmm. while not going overboard into this place of like, God needs me to do these things 24 seven. I need to not sleep and I need to just work, work, work for these causes all the time. <laughs> yeah. I think that we listen, I think we let people who are marginalized, the people that we're standing in solidarity with, the people that we exchange places with, we let them set the pace. I think that's part of giving up power. And so um, if we allow our sort of upwardly mobile culture to set the pace, if we allow ourselves to set the pace, um, maybe there's good reason not to trust that. But I think what we do is we go to folks who we're building community with and um, we ask them um, to allow us to collaborate in their work and then I think we show up. And um, like, you know, if you look at people like Titnat Han or um, Aung San Suu Kyi, the Lady of Burma and other folks like who have been doing really amazing justice work, but also have like very good Sabbath practices, um, even though they're Buddhist. I know I'm mixing on the religions and everything, but um, they have really good sa Sabbath practices. They have their like one day of Sabbath that like they, it's a real day. You know, Titnat Han would like to sit in meditation all day, but then the rest of the time he was like on it. And I think um, we, uh, we don't actually take that Sabbath and we don't protect it. I'm reading Abraham Heschel's book right now, which is called The Sabbath. And so like, he's another great example of like an amazing like mystic activist. And because we don't really protect that, we, we're so tired. But I think if we, we have that like 24 hours or so where we really are present to God and present to life-giving community, we can go. 
<laughs> and we can go on the terms of the folks who are the most marginalized. Yeah. Last question right here. Okay. Um, can, was that good? Okay. All right. Um, so I've been trying to figure out a way to kind of structure this in a question. Um, but I think it still kind of comes out as a comment. Uh, so I apologize if it's unwarranted. Um, but it, it dovetails on the previous question about Mark Cuban and um, how to distinguish, or if you have you know, three males with similar characteristics, what makes me fear one uh, over the other? And you know, just as I think, because a lot of people here seem to be yearning for a place to start, so where do I start? And I think a great place to start is with famili famili familiarity. If, um, because it seems to be a common trait, I mean, through any living species, to fear the unknown. And I think we fear and we have this, this, this consistency where we see fear of, of black men or fear of uh, people of color because they're unknown, you know? And it's kind of to give an example. It's, so I grew up most of my life throughout the Southeast. Um, you know, I grew up military, traveled a lot. And, was exposed to a lot of different cultures. But one culture that I wasn't really familiar with was the Asian culture. And I know now having a, uh, you know, a good amount of Asian friends, that's something that's common is mixing them, whether Chinese or Japanese or Korean or you know, Thai, Filipino. And Asians may be able to distinguish this amongst each other because they're familiar with each other. Like, for instance, with black men, I know whether or not this guy is a threat to me. I know whether or not the two black men across the room are a threat to me because I know their characteristics. I can tell and I can distinguish and say, hey, no, this is not. I don't have to worry about that. It's the same thing with Hispanics. You know, a Mexican can distinguish Salvadorian and so forth and so on. So to overcome that fear, you have to become familiar to understand why I shouldn't fear this person, why I shouldn't walk around them, I have to know how to, how to distinguish this person, how to understand them and say, like with my friends, my friends don't worry about me. My friends will leave me in their house with whatever else. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but if I just met you, you may not. And, 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 it, and it may be warranted, but you have to, and, that, and that's more than just saying, oh, I listen to hip hop and, you know, I have a black friend. Um, that's not being familiar, you know, um, because, I listen to country and new people in the <laughs> South, but I'm not familiar with every redneck and, or every, excuse me, every person that listens to country, um, like myself. But, and, and I don't want to make this long-winded and I apologize, but seriously, I think mm -hmm. the first step before you go to a Black Lives Matter meeting, because, you know, I don't go to Black Lives Matter meeting. I've always known this and I've always, dealt with these situations and the things that she talked, I have a sister named Lakeisha, and I know the, the difficulty that she's had with a law degree from Loyola in getting jobs. So, and so that's probably why my parents named me Austin because it's a little bit easier. Um, but start by just getting to know the people around you and whoever that may be, whoever that may be close to you, whether they're in your church or whether they're in their whatever, wherever, whatever it may be. Just get familiar. Don't try to go out and you know protest and put your fist up. That's cool and it's great and it's beneficial, but it's more beneficial to really get to understand who that person is, 
what are the challenges they deal with, and what makes them unique in their own right. Thank you. Um, I affirm that, and I, and I add an and. It's a both and, I think. Um, I think some of the best ways for us to get to know people are to um, collaborate with them. So do go to protests and things, um, partially because um, uh, I'm really busy being black. I don't really have time to be your black friend, you know? So like, I mean, I think that a lot of times, um, <laughs> a lot of times people who, who, um, who want to become familiar um, end up asking people of color to do more labor by being your friend and sharing our stories and telling you about our history and listening to you talk about your fears and wiping away your white tears <laughs> and a bunch of other things. And um, I think the best way to get to know people is to join organizations and work alongside um, people. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs>